Okay, I'll ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And reading verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, work through uh, his word as we sit under it. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you that we have your word in our own language, uh, that we have many good translations, and uh, we are grateful for that. And we think that there are still so many uh, tribes in in places and tongues that do not have your word yet in their language. So we thank you for it. Help us not to take that for granted. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you probably noticed that the title is Worshipful Service to God, Part 2, and you might be seeing what happened to Part 1. Well, that was April 16th, and uh, as as I was saying to someone earlier, it was warmer then than it is now when I was here in April. Uh, But... It's Maine, and we're used to that. The gist of the first 11 chapters of Romans is that God in his grace and mercy has saved us through Jesus Christ, and he's restored us to the ability to be what human beings were meant to be, as we see in those first two chapters of the Bible. So we've been restored to the very purpose of our humanity to serve our creator I appreciate, I appreciate your prayers this morning. They're a blessing, but I particularly picked up on the one about overthinking things, and I think we do that. Not that we should be shallow in our understanding of the Christian life and how to live it, but I do think we overthink it sometimes. I mean, I'm a created being. I'm a sinner. I was saved, and now that I'm saved and my hope is based on the gospel alone, I have no hope in myself, now I'm to live for my creator. And it's really that simple in a way. And I do think we overthink it sometimes and we get all tangled up in our thinking about what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, let me briefly review what we have talked about so far uh, from part one. We said that worshipful service to God doesn't happen automatically. And as a rule, it takes exhortation. That's what Paul's doing here. When he says, I appeal to you, he's using the word exhortation. I exhort you. And... Again, one of the prayers, and I don't know who was praying it, but someone had mentioned about the proneness to be cold and to wander, and that's why we need each other. That's why the Bible in the New Testament is constantly talking about exhort one another daily. Um, Yes, we could be locked away in uh, solitude someplace or solitary confinement, and God would meet us in that place. There's no, no doubt about that. But as a rule, God loves to use means to help us to continue on in the faith. That's what Paul says in the book of Acts. As he went back through some of those cities where he had preached, he said that he was doing it so that they might continue in the faith. And so that's what we need to do. It doesn't happen automatically as a rule. 
That's why you have all the one another's in the New Testament. Also, we saw that this appeal, this exhortation for worshipful service, it's steeped and marinated in the gospel. And I want to stress that. Uh, I think I might have alluded to this last time, but uh, there's been a movement in the last 15, 20 years, and it's called Christ, the Christ-centered preaching, uh, Christ-centered understanding of the, of the Christian life. Now, obviously, that's good and that's true, and we should be doing that. Where that came from is that it was, it was being discovered that there's so much preaching from Bible-believing churches was going off one side, and going into the other ditch, and what was happening was it was just a constant do, 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 and forgetting that, okay, what is my foundation? Why am I doing the things I do? It's because I've been redeemed. I'm a sinner, and I'm saved by grace. And so uh, I think there's a danger, that, and I see it in listening to lots of sermons now. I think there is a danger in the so-called Christ-centered movement, and that sounds like I'm going to how can you say something bad about that? But I think the danger is, is what's happening is, is that, People are beginning to forget that the Bible is full of commandments, of doing, of obligation, of duty. But as long as we stay rooted in the gospel, we'll be all right. But I fear that there is a danger there. Now, the minute you say anything like command, it's like, oh, this guy's he's he's preaching the law now. No, no. As long as you understand, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments and on and on like that. So. We just need to be careful because that's what Paul's doing here. He says, I am appealing to you by the mercies of God, by those first 11 chapters where he explains how the Gentile world went astray and suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But then when he comes to the Jews, you can sum up the history of the Jews like this, as he says at the end of the 10th chapter. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so it's true of Jew and Gentile. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. So we remember then that the things that God tells us to do, they're they're steeped in gospel realities. Okay, then we come to the third thing that we talked about. And here I'm going to break a homiletical rule. Uh, in other words, uh, you're not supposed to do this. I'm, I split. I'm going to split a point. In other words, I made a point last week, but I didn't finish. Not last week, last April, and I didn't finish it. If you don't tell on me, if you don't tell my professors at seminary, I won't tell on things I hear about you. Okay? Uh, but to some people, this would be oh, horrible, horrible. He he's done such a terrible thing. But most of those people that talk that way have never spent lots of times in pulpits. I I, I figured that out. And so they are very textbook oriented. And uh, I'm kind of a rebel when it comes to that there. Um, So we saw that the worshipful service to God involves actively pursuing uh, the will of God, the revealed will of God. And we got that from the phrase that you present yourselves or you present your bodies. It's active. It's not let go, let God. Um, It's not a passive thing. But as Christians, and this is where we get into that overthinking thing. We just remember that as I live my life, I am to energetically, deliberately, purposefully serve God according to his word. And I'm always depending on his spirit. I mean, that never leaves your mind. It's like Romans 8 says, it's by the spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. So it's it's not either or it's both. And I depend totally on Christ and his spirit to work in me through his word. But at the same time, I present myself actively to God. Here am I, God. 
send me, that, that kind of idea. Now, this is where we pick up. What about this phrase that he uses here? He says, present your bodies. Why didn't he add in your souls, uh, as in First Thessalonians 5.23, when you have that benediction that says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Why does he use the word body here? Well, he's certainly not promoting some kind of formalism or some kind of externalism. In other words, do, 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 without with any regard to the inner attitude, without any uh, regard to the inner disposition of the heart. In other words, we can do lots of things with an unrepentant heart. No one, no one knows it. They can't see through it. They, can't, they don't know what we're doing. Uh, we know that both testaments uh, constantly are speaking against externalism, mere externalism. It's sub-Christian. Classic passage in the New Testament would be where Christ says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And the New Testament is full of that kind of idea that it's not right. It's not sufficient. You can't live your Christian life by just looking good on the outside, but inside you're full of hatefulness and lust and all kinds of things like that. You, you find it in both Testaments. Even in the Old Testament, many times, like Isaiah chapter 1, God through the prophet is saying, I hate what you're doing. Oh, you're doing the things I've commanded you to do, your sacrifices, your feast days, your Sabbaths, your new moons. But I hate what you're doing because you're full of murder and blood and, and lust and hatred. And he actually says, stop your sacrifices. I don't want them anymore. They make me sick. Because the heart wasn't right. It was mere externalism. And as he said to the scribes and Pharisees there, it's just hypocrisy. It's just putting on a mask. It's just pretend. And we can do that. A church can become that. A church can become a place where everybody's just pretending. You know, we come to church and we just pretend all the time. I don't mean that we have to come in and tell everything that's, on our, that's coming out of our black hearts or that we have to pretend we're happy when we're not. I don't mean that. But what I am saying is that we don't come in as hypocrites either. I mean, I don't like it. I used to have a, maybe I, I don't remember where I mentioned this, but I had a guy who used to call me from our church. He was down in, down in Poland. Good man. Love him. But he'd call me occasionally because he, uh, he was a trustee, and he would say, how you doing today? And I'd say, okay. What? Just okay? You know, and I was like, now that's not going to help me if you talk to me like that, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of weight on me and thinking, you know, and he calls and he's kind of interrupting me. And how are you doing today? Okay. Well, we shouldn't bug people that way. You know, I was just trying to be honest. I didn't say, oh, I'm on top of the world. You know, everything's going. No, I just was being honest. Um, the idea of present your bodies, it's really synonymous with present yourselves. It's that, that simple. You know, you've gone up to someone's house before, probably on a summer day and the you stop in, you want to see them for a second, you've got to drop something off to them, and the door is open, the screen door is closed, and you look in, you can't see anybody, and what do you say? You say, any body home? We know what we mean. We don't mean it's just your body there. We mean, are you there? 
Or if the boss says, everybody be here tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, we, need it. we have a special meeting, everybody be here. You know what he means? He means you can't leave your spirit someplace else. You've got to get your body there, too. So body emphasizes that it's important what you do. That's why he's using here, I think. He didn't have to just say body. But what you do with the physical aspect of your being is very important in the New Testament. And probably the reason why he does that is because in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't important what you did with your body. There were many spiritual people, but they lived like the devil. And it's the same today. You've, you've heard people say that. They'll say about some famous athlete or a famous singer. They'll say, oh, they're very spiritual. Very spiritual. Oh, they'll say that about themselves. I'm a very spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that they go sit on a rock someplace and think themselves into oblivion? I mean, they can have lives that are totally out of step with the Bible, but they say, I'm a very spiritual person. The Bible makes it clear that it's not only what we are thinking, but it's what we're doing that matters to God, too. The body is the instrument that God gave you to serve him. And you find the same idea in Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, 12 and 13, you've got the idea of body. And then he says your members, meaning your fingers, arms, eyes, all that stuff. And then he also calls it in verse 13, yourselves. So it's just shorthand for that. Of course, the very next verse does stress the inner transformation of the mind. Uh, one commentator, Leon Morris, says he is referring to the human person in the concrete manifestation of his life. Grace affects the whole of life and is not some remote ethereal affair. It's very practical, the Christian life is. And we need practical people in the church. We need godly people. We need people who are thinkers and all that. But we need people that are practical. Because it's very easy to become, especially in a well-taught church like this one is, or like where I'm going right now, it's very easy to become a congregation of eggheads and not be practical. I don't detect that here, but I'm just saying it's always a danger. So biblical Christianity never portrays uh, the activity of the body as an unimportant thing. Uh, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are members of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.15. We're told that it's by the Holy Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8. John Murray put it like this, Hence, sanctification, and that's what this chapter is talking about, hence, sanctification must bring the body within its scope. Sanctification is practical in the best sense of that word. So what you do, how you behave, how you conduct yourself is no small matter. Not enough to say, I'm very spiritual, I'm very religious. After all, what does James say? He says, be doers of the word. James is kind of a jarring book, isn't it? It really is a jarring book because he doesn't have much about the gospel in there. It's assumed in the book of James. James is a do guy, and you can get in trouble preaching the book of James. I think I told you about that, right? Did I tell you about that before? If I, when I, the first series, okay, thank you for helping me. Uh, yes, I mean, you can just preach all the do's and forget the gospel, but on the other hand, we can forget the do's. Uh, so what you do is so important. So we're pre to present our bodies, notice how he describes it, as a sacrifice, a living one to God. So he's obviously using the language of priestly, sacrificial ritual. The major difference, as everybody points out in the commentaries, that in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was killed. 
And here we're a living sacrifice. Now, again, somebody prayed something about this this morning. Someone said it about we being a priesthood to God, and that's true. So, for example, 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds kind of heady and, and high, but what does that really mean? Well, listen to the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, by him, that is by Jesus in the context, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been offering sacrifices to God in the very next verse. Hebrews 13:16, he says, but do not forget to do good and to share It's the word fellowship. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So I heard something mentioned about the deacons fund. That's what you're doing. It's a sacrifice. Uh, Philippians 4.18, Paul mentions the money gift that the Philippians sent him. And he says it was a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. Here in Romans 12.1, he's not talking so much about what we do. He's talking about us. I want you to be the sacrifice. We ourselves are an offering to God. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, says it is not only what we can give that God demands. He demands the giver. Second uh, Corinthians 8, 5 is a good example of that. You remember Paul was taking up an offering everywhere he went for the poor church at Jerusalem. And the Corinthian Christians had made a promise that they would contribute to this helping of the poor saints at Jerusalem. And Paul uses the poor churches in Macedonia, so Philippians, the, the, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, for example. He uses them as, of an, as an example of what they should be doing. And partly what he says is this, is he's trying to stimulate the Corinthians to follow through and to, and to give as they promised they were going to do. He says about the Macedonian Christians, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. We need to follow that pattern. Before you, before you do anything, you say, okay, Lord, I don't even really want to do this. this. This is not a happy thing that I have to do, but I know it's a responsibility that you've given me to do, so I want to go at it with the right attitude. I'm not going to pretend I'm happy about it necessarily, but, Lord, I'm going to do this because I'm going to give myself to you. I am your servant, so I'm going to do this thing. Just be honest with God. It's the pattern that we're to follow, especially when we're inclined to grumble. You know, that's why Peter says in First Peter 4, he says about hospitality, he says, do it without grumbling. You ever done that? Why do we do that? Why do we invite them over today? Oh, my week's been so busy. And, I'll, and on and on, we grumble and grumble. He says, don't do that. Also, when he says living sacrifice, uh, it may, I think it does have the connotation of an ongoing sacrifice. So this is what we do. I mean, you don't have to do it, obviously, this exact pattern, but as you get up in the day, you say, you do this 24-7, 365 and a quarter. You say, God, I'm a living sacrifice today. I'm going to live for you. It's, I'm not a one-time act. I didn't say there, I served God last month. I'm set for the year. No, every day I'm to serve him. Uh, Charles Hodge, in his commentary, says the sacrifice we are to make is not a transient service like the oblation of a victim, which was consumed on the altar, 
but it is a living or a perpetual sacrifice never to be neglected or to be recalled. In other words, there ought to be integrity in our service. If, if we could do it this way, if we could cut you open, and anywhere we cut you open, we would say, servant of God, living sacrifice, let's cut him here. Yep, he's, everywhere he is, he's a living sacrifice. The point being that everything you do, you see yourself as the servant of Christ and that you're living for him. Now, notice that uh, this bodily sacrifice is described by two other terms, holy and well-pleasing or acceptable as ESV has it. Holy, set apart. My life is set apart for you, God. I'm consecrated to you. Everything that I do is to be unto you for your glory. Uh, One writer says, holiness is the governing principle of the believer. In other words, we say, am I able to do this in the name of Jesus? By name of Jesus, I mean according to who he is and what he stands for. Am I able to do this in his name and say, I'm doing this for Christ? Is it holy? In other words, you, don't, you wouldn't say, oh, I need, to, I need to put something in the offering plate today. I'm going to have to go rob the bank so I can do that. I mean, I'm being ridiculous. So you can see, is it holy? You know, there was a song when I was a teenager. I spent a summer, part of a summer at the Ted Williams camp in Massachusetts. And uh, I still remember the hits that were on the radio. We used to listen to a Providence radio station, a lot of the guys in, the, in our cabin. And forgive me for the title of this song, but there was a title of one song by a man by the name of Luther Ingram. I think that was his name was Loving You Is Wrong. I Don't Want to Be Right. See what I mean? So you can be doing certain things say, well, it feels right, so I'm going to do it. Is it holy? That's the question. Is it a holy sacrifice? Is this something that you can take before the Lord and say, Lord, I present this to you? And the second word is really very closely related to what he's talking about here when he says well-pleasing or acceptable. Is this something that God can delight in? I don't have to guess about it. I, I've got the structure of his word here. Uh, he's using terminology from the Old Testament sacrifices of Something being a smooth, a soothing, sweet aroma to God, which, of course, is the opposite of an irritating stench. Um, up in the area where Aaron comes from, Livermore, um, I'm sure he's familiar with the DeCosta egg farms, something else now. But in, where we lived in Poland, in order to get to a CEF camp, you've got to go weave up through some of those roads up through there. And they have mountainous piles of, of chicken stuff everywhere. And the, you, you, learn, you learn something really amazing about yourself. You can, you can hold your breath for 10 minutes if you have to. <laughs> it's an irritating stench. It's like, how could anything smell like this? How can it be so bad? Don't think about that when you eat eggs. It doesn't help. But when he talks about uh, something being well-pleasing or acceptable... He's saying the opposite, that it's repulsive, something repulsive, something that is, uh, it causes revulsion. Let me give you an example of that. In Malachi, the book of Malachi, Malachi is post-exilic. It's after the Jews came back from that captivity in Babylon. And, you know, when the Jews first came back from Babylon, well, one thing that certainly they had learned their lesson about, lesson about was no more idolatry, idolatry proper. They, they knew there was one God, Yahweh, and that was it. 
So when they first came back, they were zealous and a lot of things were going on. And we see the books of Haggai and Zechariah where they have to start being prompted because they're beginning to get lazy and comfortable. But in Malachi, what you see is they're beginning to get bored with God. The priests are getting bored with God and the people are getting bored with God. So in Malachi 1.8, you've got this. God says to them, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, that was a big no-no. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And listen to what God says. Present them to your governor. Would he accept that or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And we're also told that even they were giving the wrong things to God. They were giving him the things that they didn't want. They even did that grudgingly. The text says, the priests were saying, oh, what a weariness. Oh, it's Sunday morning, got to go to church today. Uh, we were at a work day one time years ago down at our church, and one of the trustees, one of the people who was kind of responsible for keeping the place picked up, but we always had our spring work day, and most churches do something like that in the fall work day. I happened to be beside him as we were sweeping the parking lot, getting some of the sand out of it from, from the winter. He crabbed and crabbed and crabbed. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to be someplace else. He could have been doing this, doing that. He was saying to God, oh, what a weariness. Oh, this is awful. I don't want to be here. He forgot that he was serving the living God. I don't care if you're plunging out a toilet or if you're preaching a message. It's service to God. It's service to God. So when we serve God, we don't do it merely dutifully. We do do it dutifully. That's a good word. We do it because God wants us to do it. But we also, we have the right heart, the joyful, cheerful. I mean, these people should have been saying, Lord, you delivered us out of Babylon. You brought us home after 70 years of captivity. No, they had forgotten all of that. They'd forgotten that sort of thing. We do the same thing. We've been saved from hell by Christ. But we forget it and we complain. It's not a good thing to be around people that complain, too. I'm discovering that Uh, people that complain all the time. You really have to just kind of shut off your ears to the complaining because it's kind of like poison ivy. It really spreads easily. So. We should serve God, not in a miserly way. You know, we got this expression that we're using today. I need me time. This is me time. You know, okay, I think I know what people are saying. I need to get away from everybody and be alone for a while and relax and rest. That's fine. But there's something that's in our society that's very selfish. So we serve God not begrudgingly, not with a murmuring, complaining spirit. I don't suppose I'm I'm assuming that you were talking about VBS. Is that was that what that was? That letter you I didn't really know. I wasn't quite sure. Um, they're having quite a time at Pilgrim right now trying to get enough people to serve in VBS. And I don't know if you are or not, but a lot of people just don't want to do that. They just don't want to do that, even if they think that they should. Uh, we should do we should do. We should serve God eagerly. We shouldn't think, oh, this is such a nuisance. Why do we have to do this? It's so tedious. I'm not talking about VBS right now, uh, even though it can be. I did it a lot of times. Uh, this is drudgery. The psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Jesus put it like this in John 4 when the disciples wanted to know if he had eaten and 
Did you, did you, he said, they thought he'd already eaten when they had gone into town to get food. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says, that's the thing I thrive on, is doing the will of my father. So is it holy? Is it well-pleasing to God? Um, a Christian life is to be a presentation of self to God. That includes little things, medium things, big things, and great big things. Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let your life be a sweet-smelling aroma. One other thing I want to mention, by the way, I just say this quickly, as I kept going over this stuff, I realized that I had enough material here that it was either going to be a really long sermon or two shorter sermons, and so I'm like everybody else, I like to be liked. So I decided I'd go with two shorter ones. So again, I don't know where I said this, but I quote Spurgeon a lot. He said, leave them longing, not loathing. (laughs) But I I would put it like this, though, for myself, uh, at least try to leave them longing, you know, but definitely don't leave them loathing. And you know all that is, don't you? When's he going to get done? When is he going to be done? I get it. Stop. Okay, one more thing. <laughs> he says here that this way of life, now I'm going to tip my hand at the beginning of how I interpret this phrase. I almost had to choke. I almost choked when I had to read it from the ESV, but that's all right. I knew I had my, my time was coming to unchoke. Um, He says that this way of life is a rational way of life. It's reasonable service. Um, There's an issue here as how you translate this word, which is translated in the ESV, spiritual worship. Um, You have really two options here. And one is translated logical. Now, the Greek word behind it sounds just like logical. That's not a safe way to interpret a, a, a word, though, because you don't take and take the etymology of a word and try to. translate it directly over into another language over time. We know how words change, right? In the King James Version, for example, we're told that we're not, that the dead won't, uh, the the living won't prevent those who are dead when Jesus comes again. And the word prevent there means precede, but it sounds like something completely different. So words change. You can't use etymology. But here I think if you trace this word through time, this word logicon, it's logic, Um, It means rational, reasonable. It's a very common usage in classical Greek. I haven't read a lot of classical Greek. I'm not pretending I've just got the tools that people use for that. Uh, The philosophers use it commonly to mean rational, sane, uh, reasonable. So that's that's an option, which is the one I'm going to take. The other one is the one you've got in the ESV, spiritual. And Peter seems like he might use it that way in First Peter 2, too. He says, desire the spiritual milk of the word. It's the same word here, um, that word logicon. But even there, I think Peter could be saying, desire the reasonable, logical milk, namely the word. He could be saying that there, too. So it has the idea of something that's internal. So you have different translations. The old NIV, we can say that now, the old NIV says spiritual act of worship. The newer NIV, 2011, says this is your true and proper worship. I kind of like that. That's pretty good. NASB says, I'm not going to give you all the translations. Relax. NASB says spiritual service of worship. 
So spiritual is a possible translation, but there's another word that's commonly translated spiritual. So I think the King James and the New King James, I think they got it closer here when they say reasonable service. By the way, if you look at the footnote in your ESV, it tells you something like that as well. So what he's talking about is, to quote one of the study Bibles, the worship that is appropriate for redeemed creatures to offer. In other words, based on the mercies of God, it's logical, it's reasonable to live as he tells us to live here in 12.1 and following. It's the only rational, sane way to live in the light of Calvary. Again, one commentator says, the sacrifice, you and me, is to be intelligent in contrast to those offered by ritual and compulsion. The presentation is to be in accordance with the spiritual intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and are mindful of the mercies of God. John Murray put it like this. This service is rational in contrast to what is mechanical and automatic. So if you claim to be a Christian, you say, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If we could look at your life, not in a snapshot, but in a movie, so that we could get a a good uh, sample size, um, Is your life reasonable? Is it rational? You say, in other words, here you were lost. I was lost. And going my way, no thought of God in my life, living the way I wanted to live, like the rest of the Gentiles, as we're told in Romans 1, and God in his mercy, in his grace, despite all the things that we were doing and thinking, he reached down and he saved us. And he forgave us. He washed away our sins. But not only that, salvation is not merely negative. It's positive. He also promises one day when we die to take us to glory. And then not only that, he promises one day to raise us from the dead. Not only that, he's got a place to put our bodies. We're not going to be all dressed up with no place to go. We're going to be living in a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I don't deserve any of that. But in the gospel, he's promised me that. So what is the only rational, reasonable way to live? So I ask it again in closing. Are you living in a rational, reasonable way in light of what Christ has done for you? Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help us every day to present ourselves to you actively and and realize that we are a living sacrifice before you. Uh, Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Is my life reasonable? Is it rational? Uh, Not in the individual incidents per se, but as my life as a whole, does it make sense in light of what I proclaim, in light of what I profess to believe? So, Lord, help each one of us here today who claim to know you uh, to live a life that's reasonable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Brother.